This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Destroying the Works of the Devil," was recorded at Wellspring Church on January twelfth, twenty twenty. The text for this message is First John chapter three, verses four to ten. Passage this morning be actually the same as last week. It comes from First John chapter three, verses four through ten. Um, this is the reading of God's word. Everyone who makes the practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take sin away, and in him there is no sin. No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. So if you were with us last week, we talked about why it is so hard to stop the practice of sinning, and why it's completely impossible to stop sinning this side of heaven. Our hearts are so prone to sin that our actions betray what we've already experienced in our souls. Today we're going to talk about the second reason why it is so hard to stop the practice of sinning, the devil. And recognize that the devil is not primary. He's not the main culprit of why it is so difficult. Again, it's our own hearts. It's not something external from us. But what the devil does do is he latches on to that tendency, that uh, proclivity that we have in our souls. And then he deceives us in very cunning, subtle ways to turn us away ultimately from God. And I hope to show you his, his tactics and why they're so deceitful. And yet, that's not the end of the story. The first thing about the devil is that the word devil is actually, in, in a certain way, a a better way to describe Satan. The word Satan, both of these words originally started as Hebrew words, and then they're translated into the Greek. Satan literally means adversary, so someone who is against you. And in this instance, Satan is not only against us, but against God himself. Ultimately, that's who he's an adversary of. But the word devil is actually, a, a you might say, a, a more appropriate understanding of who Satan is, because the word devil, devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which, yeah, we get the word Mount Diablo, devil's mountain, right? Um, and it, it literally means one who separates or a seducer, so someone who divides. And that's actually a much more appropriate and clearer understanding of the works of the devil. That's actually what his whole life Eternal mission is about, is to divide. You have to keep that in mind because 
Actually, in going through this message, it just made me think through what it means for not only Satan to divide, but actually the ultimate work of Christ, which is to unify, you know, to bring together, to reconcile. And you'll see this all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So Satan, the devil, he works diligently to separate us first from God and then from one another. And everything he does is to that end. Make no mistake, there is not a moment that goes by where the devil and his angels are doing all that he can to keep you from God. And the way that he's going to do that primarily is to keep you from other people. And so we see this as a constant, ongoing work. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 6, the very famous passage on spiritual warfare. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We often, especially in the West, take this passage very lightly, actually, all considering, because we tend to see things only on the material and physical levels. But what Paul's saying is that we live in a spiritual world. This is not just a physical world. This is a spiritual world as well, where there are forces at work. And the primary role of that force, the devil, is to keep you away from God as much as possible. And he's going to use all means, all relationships, every single aspect of your life at any moment. He's going to use that. Yesterday I was at a, went to a restaurant last night and I was, it was a tough parking. I was trying to park my car and um, my wife and I, we were, we had to bring two cars because we had a large party. And so we both double parked right in front and it happened to be, this is at nighttime in Oakland and it was right at a, uh, sort of right over a bike lane. And you know, this is pitch black, dark at night. And then suddenly this woman just flying by in her bicycle, just, I was, we were both doing well, having a great time talking and, and we're just trying to figure out the parking. And suddenly she flies by in her bike and she says, she starts cursing me out and say, this is my lane. <laughs> and I'm, in that moment, suddenly just this urge of wanting to run after her and shout at her. I mean, it's, it's stark that it just comes like that in a moment. Where does that come from? Yes, my own flesh. But there is a, a devil at work. The devil and his angels. He wants to keep you turning away from God and toward, not toward Satan, but toward you, yourself. And so he's actively at work keeping you sinning. You must not fear him though. You don't need to be afraid of him. At the same time, we must not underestimate him. And it's a fatal mistake to, on the one hand, find him all-powerful. It's also a fatal mistake to find him non-existent. And that tends to be the case with so many of us, is that we either find him non-existent or too powerful. But instead, we're going to look and see through John's eyes what are these four aspects that he wants us to focus on when it comes to the devil. The first is his sin, in verse 8. 
The second are his works in verse 8 as well. In verse 10, it's his children, the devil's children. And the last is verse 9, the most important, his destruction. So his sin, his works, his children, his destruction. In the first, we'll look at that primary sin of the devil in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John wants us to see so clearly that the devil was there from the beginning. Now, here's the big question is, what does John mean when he talks about the beginning? It's perhaps Genesis chapter 3, which we have our first record of the devil sinning. But it's quite possible that it's more than that. In John 8.44, John writes, he was a murderer from the beginning. So either it's from the garden, but really the devil, and we don't know anything more than what the Bible tells us, but we do know is that the devil was there in the garden sinning, but probably that wasn't the first instance because there was a point where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So God created and um, God existed as a triune Godhead by himself, and God created. In fact, we know Satan is a created being, and his angels are created beings. And somewhere along the way, and again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know is that the devil turned away with his angels. In fact, Jude 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So somehow, sometime, Satan, the devil, and his angels turned away from God and turned toward themselves. Now, as to what that looked like, that's a discussion for another time. But we certainly know that, most of all, the devil is clearly in the garden. At least in the beginning of human existence, the devil was there. And if we go back to our understanding of sin in verse 4, that sin that not only Adam and Eve did, but as well the devil did, is an active displacement of God as God. It's this ongoing lawlessness. It's a progression of an arrogant rebellion against God. And it revealed this heart of utter defiance. In this way, the devil is truly the epitome of lawlessness. He's not an anti-God. And that's something that you have to keep in mind. He's not the opposite of God. Because... He has no equal power or omniscience. But he is a created being who certainly has some power and some rule. He's an unequal adversary of God, opposed to God and his people in every way. The devil's sin, then, you have to understand, is not a unique sin. It's actually the same as our sin. The devil's sin is to curse God and to say that God is powerless, he's weak, and he's not really God. All we need to do is look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, when the devil says, did God actually say, did God really say? He says that to Eve. And he didn't just seduce Eve with something he himself didn't believe. That's how he lived. He really believed this to be true. At the core of his being, he questions God's validity and his plan. When God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, and here's the key phrase, 
you shall surely die. So this is God speaking to Adam and Eve, telling them that they must not eat from this tree. And there's a true and real consequence to their actions. But we find out that the devil turns to Eve and says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, you will, again, keyword, not surely die. Quite the opposite of what God says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So let's look at what the devil's doing. He's denying God's word to be true. He calls God essentially, inferentially a liar. He also tells Eve that you will be like God. And remember, let's recall that sin, if sin is the displacement of God as rightful ruler, majestic king in your life, and then the, the turning away and putting something or someone other than God as ruler over your life, then Satan is truly taking this tact. He tells Eve that you're going to be like God. You will be God. You don't need God. And here's the thing is that for Satan, in Satan's worldview, sin is not evil. Now, because sin is displacing God, it's rejecting God, it's turning away from God. And that's exactly what Satan is all about is he's God or your God. Anything other than God is God. He's very crafty. He's very cunning. He doesn't go out there and just try to convince you to worship him. He tries to convince you to worship yourself. He didn't try to get you to do evil things in your life. He tries to get you to do anything else other than what God finds ultimate and primary. And so his whole goal is to make you think that God's word is not true. And in his universe, sin is good, good, um, sin is good, and God is evil. God is evil. He is the epitome and the definition of evil. You know, all these years when I was reading Genesis chapter 3, I always saw Satan as a master deceiver. That he knew what was true, and even though he knows what is true, he's actually trying to get you to buy into what is false. But you know, in exploring this and thinking about the reality of deception, you begin to realize that actually, I do think Satan really believes everything he's saying. That he's not trying to deceive Eve based on knowing what is true and false, but rather, he really believes God is a liar. He really believes sin, turning away from God, is better for everyone. Because in his worldview, God is a tyrant. God is wrong. He's evil. And that's Satan's warped perspective. Let me illustrate this for you. Some of you have had wonderful teachers in your life. And if you really reflect on who are the best teachers you have ever had, they're usually the ones that really believed in the subject that they're teaching. Math, to me, is incredibly boring. Chemistry is boring for me. But if there's a teacher... And I've never actually had a really interesting chemistry teacher because they tended to teach it as though it was their job. 
But find a teacher who loves chemistry, who is deeply embedded into it and loves talking about moles and all the, you know, the, just the equations and all these things. And I don't even remember what chemistry is about. And they, they love it so much. You can see it. It's, it's just oozing out of their body. And as they do that, students tend to rub off on that. They get excited about it. Even if they're not interested in chemistry, they say, wow, you're making it interesting because they're so passionate about it. I actually don't think Satan is trying to convince us to believe in something that he actually doesn't believe in. He actually is trying to convince us to believe in something he does believe in. That God is evil. That he's out to get you. That he has a miserable plan for your life. And he is doing everything he can to keep your real ultimate destiny away from you. The reason why Hitler was a master deceiver is not because he was a liar, but he was delusional. He really believed the Aryan race was superior and every other race was subhuman. And the reason why he was so convincing to the German people is because he was convinced of it with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that gave him the power of oration, the ability to confuse and to obfuscate, because by being able to explain that so well, it came deep from within his soul, and he acted, in his mind, truth. That is the greatest evil of all, actually, if you think about it. It's not the con man, but it's the delusionary. It's the person who truly believes what they're doing. That's what is most sick and evil. The mass murderer who murders because they have, get some money out of it, you know, that while we all might think that's terrible, we don't, it's not sickening. But the mass murderer who kills people for sport because it, it just is something they believe in deeply that this person needs to die and they're going to do everything they can to torture and because they fully have grasped it. That's the person who leaves us disgusted. And it leaves us agape with horror. The devil is that person. He really believes God is evil. He really curses God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he really believes that God deserves nothing. Now, you have to understand, that's very different than the atheist that is taking God's name in vain and swearing and cursing out God. Generally, they are skeptical whether there is God. So there's this idea that there's no consequence. But the devil knows there is God, and he's still swearing and cursing out God like that, much more than any human being has ever done. Now, try to think about that for a moment, and you begin to realize, wow, that's a warped being. But you can only do that if you really believe, one, there's no repercussion, this being is powerless, and I'm in control. That's the devil's sin. I hope you get a little bit of a picture of how dark and diabolical he truly is. Next, we look at the devil's work in verse 8, works. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what are these works of the devil that the Son of God came to destroy? Well, if we again, if we consider the very word devil, which means to seduce and separate us from God, then his works are anything that accomplishes that task. It's as basic as that. Whatever causes us, and that refers to anything, 
that causes us to turn away from God is the devil's works. It is to do everything he can to cause us to sever our ties with God, to turn away our trust from him. How does he accomplish this? John 8.44 says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, you see it here. This is who he is. It's out of his own character, his own being. He can't help himself. The reason why he lies so much is because he actually believes these lies. It's truth to him. He's not only a deceiver, he's self-deceived. He's delusional. He's lying out of his own character. His plans, his propaganda, his agendas, all are out there to prop himself up or anyone else as God other than God. And there are so many tactics and deceptions. Just going to list a few that come that I see from Genesis chapter 3. And there are many more, actually. But here's a few of them. First, he undermines God's authority. Did God actually say? So one tactic he has is to get you to question God as truly God in your life. That he has no authority. He's of no significance. That you don't submit yourself to him. You don't trust him. Second is the questioning of God's power. Verse 4, you will not surely die. God can't do anything to you. That's what Satan says. He has no power. God has no power. He's a myth. He's a religious myth. Third, he mocks God's justice and love. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That verse truly is a, a just a, a total mockery of one. That God is out there to love you. That all of his plans are there to show you his great love. As well as, if you should break this, there's going to be a consequence to it. And if there's no consequence to your breaking of God's law, then God is not God. And he's not someone you would ever want to submit to or follow or trust. Next is, there's a vilifying of God's character. Same as in verse 5. In essence, it's, you're a good moral person. You don't need God. God is the one who's wrong and evil, not you. What you want is right. What God wants is evil. So you can determine for yourself what is good and evil. You don't need God. You don't need to trust him. You don't need to depend upon him. Verse 5, it's an ignoring of God's will. And Satan's whole tactic is God's holding back on you. Just experience pleasure. You know what you want now? The only, it's, it's just moral religion. God is trying to cause you to be miserable. Christianity is just, it's just a bunch of misery. Burdens, laws, legalism. Don't worry about anything else. God has no plan. Carpe diem, you live only once. And so that relationship, that feeling, that emotion, that romance, that thrill will never come again unless you seize it now. Don't worry about God. Don't worry about other people. Just go for it. That drug, that alcohol, that gambling, that workaholism, all of that, whatever it takes, just experience it. Don't worry about God. There are so many more. He has many tactics. 
Look at the consequences of these tactics. God doesn't know what he's doing. You weren't supposed to marry this person anyway. It's a mistake. Don't worry. It's a failed marriage. No, that, that other person out there, they really care for you. Not your husband, not your wife. One conversation, one date, one night, it won't hurt. Your parents really don't know what they're talking about. You don't need to submit to their authority. Go with your friends. They're the ones who really get your life, not your parents. I'm not talking to adult parents. I'm talking about younger kids, not adult kids. That's a whole nother story. Those drugs, just one hit. Just one. It's no big deal. Everyone else is doing it. You know, teenagers, college students, you might experience that at schools. Maybe it's at a work party. Just one. No big deal. Parents don't know anything. Besides, you know better. You call those people brothers and sisters in Christ. You know what they really think of you? Do you know how they ignored you on that Sunday? It's because they have the worst thought about you. So ignore them as well. Actually, you shouldn't suffer alone. Tell as many people as possible just what type of deceptions. Just tell them all because you got to let it all out. See, the, the scheming, the, the division, Satan, again, let's go back to the definition. His whole life vision is to separate you from God. And the way he does it is to separate you from other people. And so everything about Satan is about division, conflict, dissension. And he takes every tactic possible. So he separates husband and wife. He separates friends. He separates the church. He separates church leaders from other church leaders. He separates parents from children and children from parents. He separates yourself from yourself, the reality of your mind. He separates nations and the rulers. We don't have to think that these are just simply political machinations. They are actually the work of the devil interacting with our own instincts and saying, I don't need to trust God. I'm going to do things myself. And the way I do things myself is because I'm king. If anyone else should come into my realm, I'm going to cut them off. You have to understand how powerful that one deception is. See, we think that sin is not so bad. Why does God get so caught up and worried about one sin? I mean, granted, we sin more than once. But let's say we could perfectly live our lives except for one sin. Does God really care about one sin? One sin, one deception, one attempt to displace God, the consequences can be horrific. Because that one deception latches on to our already inclined hearts towards self-worship. And it can not only change the course of a person's life, but of many lives. If I can convince one person that he or she is not special, then I can convince him that people around him don't care for him. He then starts feeling self-pitying, then victimized. Everyone's against me. Woe is me. I need to have my 
uh, my rights validated. I need to be right in who I am. And then those around him will turn away because, frankly, no one likes a person who is full of himself. And so they become lonely and sorrowful and inward, drawn inward. And then they start having these doubts and fears and starts thinking, what good is my life? And they start thinking about taking their own life. Or maybe start, they start thinking about taking other lives and saying, you know what, all those kids that make fun of me at school, well, I'll get back at them. One lie, one deception left unchecked with a heart that is already inclined against God, with an enemy at work trying to seduce and destroy and split and cause schism, you can see why abuse happens, infidelity, arrogance, divorce, violence. My friends, sin is not cute. Your child that throws a tantrum, that's not cute. You know, when they do something and they have a, a face that looks a little rebellious as they're about to stick their fork into the outlet, as no matter how many times you told them not to do it, that's not cute. Even if they have a cute face in doing it, because that one sin left unchecked can be so deadly and so destructive, not just towards himself, but to others. Convincing a person that God's way is the center upon which we should live. It's hard, but it is so important. Otherwise, it is a destructive, diabolical, satanic course. It is the road of death. Another aspect of this whole thing is to know that the devil has children. If you ever thought of that, but verse 10 tells us that. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And listen to, this is again just John laying it out there very clearly for us. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Basically, we know who is a child of the devil by the person who does not practice righteousness, that is not of God, and does not love his brother. Well, that's pretty stark. John says something similar in John 8.44 again. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. See, John doesn't leave anyone a place to hide. There's no room for the middle ground. Well, can I just not be a child of God nor of the devil? He doesn't give us that place. It's either one or the other. And there are only these two types of children. But really, when you think about that, that should make sense to you, whether you are a Christian or not. Because if the devil and his whole life being and life vision is to separate us from God, then... If I don't want to do God's will and be his child, then there's no other place to go except to say, I want to be exactly like this person over there who wants nothing to do with God. I don't want anything to do with God. The problem with us is that we have in view this idea of the devil and we maybe have the, the horns and the pitchfork, you know, fire and hell and all these things. But at the core of the devil is a being that wants to be away from God. To do anything other than, anything else other than follow God. And if your heart is to say, I want to follow my own will and not God's will, then in that way, we are very much similar to the devil. And so again, John and Jesus is 
saying this so clearly for us. But God's children act differently. According to John in 1 John 2, 29 through 3, 1, John says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That is to say, we've talked much about the righteousness of Christ and how that is applied to anyone who trusts in, in Christ, is that when we believe in Jesus and our righteousness is his righteousness, we become welcomed into his family, then at that point we want to do God's will. Now, we don't do it perfectly. We don't make a practice of sinning our life's goal. We want to turn away from it. doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but we pursue Christ. And there's never an instance where we say, don't talk to me about Jesus. Don't ever mention Jesus to me. I don't want to follow him. I don't want to listen to him. We might actually say that even in a moment of anger or frustration. But in the end, at the core of our hearts, we'll always be willing to go back to him. And so when we go back to him, we know that, oh yeah, we're still God's children. The, if if it was stuck here, we, while that's um, something that is of a blessing, but there's so much more. And the final work you might say that, or the consequence of what happens to the devil is his destruction. Verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Lest we think that the devil somehow got an upper hand on us, John makes it so clear that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the Hebrews writer expounds more on what this looks like in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So very similar verse but with a little bit more expanded on what John is saying. How does Jesus, according to these verses, destroy the works of the devil and ultimately the devil himself? Hebrews' answer for us is very interesting. The answer of Hebrews says that he became like us. That's how he does it. And that's also why John uses the phrase son of God, because John could have used Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ Lord, the Messiah, the King, to describe Jesus at that point. But very specifically, John says the reason the Son of God appeared, because that phrase, Son of God, exactly in every every way exemplifies the incarnation of Christ. The fact that not only is Jesus God, but he is God the Son. He is the, the fleshly word that came that is to say that it signifies both Jesus' divinity and his humanity. He became like us. We just celebrated that this Christmas season. But now then it asks the next question. How does that, the incarnation, how does Jesus becoming flesh, becoming like us, destroy the works of the devil? How does that release us from the hold that the devil has over us? For this, we need to think about Satan himself and all that he did. All of Satan's deceptions are meant to drive me and you away from God. He is the evil separator. That's the core of his being. And every deception that Satan uses 
at its root has one premise. What you find vital right now, what is consequential to you, what is primary, what is ultimate in your life, that is the most important, most pleasurable, most orderly, most beautiful, most powerful thing in your life. And everything else is secondary to that. To that. It's not that there's nothing else that is important. It's that something other than God is most important to your life. That could be your work. It could be your to-do list. It could be your spouse. It could be your career. It could be your your pursuits, life visions. It could be anything. It could be video games. I mean, it could be Netflix. It could be something, and it's always in the moment. See, if we look reflectively throughout our whole life and retrospectively, I'm not trying to binge Netflix for, you know, 10 hours on the spot. But if I'm in the middle of watching a show and my wife comes up to me and says, you need to stop watching right now. That's, that's enough. There's something in me that says, no, this, I need to do this. This is very important to me. And in that moment, although retrospectively, if I could just look back a year, two years, ten years later and say, was that that important? No, absolutely not. I've used this illustration many times. For many of you, you're thinking about maybe either buying a car, you just bought a car. How will you feel about that car 20 years from now? Maybe you might think, wow, when I used to have that really beautiful car, it was so special, whatever it might be. But really, 20 years from now, it doesn't matter. But in the moment, whatever that matters to you right now, that's what Satan wants you to focus on. And our flesh, everything that we feel, whether it's anger, irritability, frustration, whether it's a sense of control over how people around us should, must respond to us, how they should respect us, how they should treat us, what they should say to us, in that moment, that is everything. And Satan is saying, that is everything. Focus on that. Make that the most important thing. And God, forget him. He's not there. He's not even a part of your life. That's important. That is vital. That is consequential. He knows to get you to turn away from God is to find every piddling thing in your life ultimate. And when that happens, guess what happens? You will be separated from God and from other people. You won't want to hear from people. You want to hide in your room. You'll want to keep, you'll put your phone away. Everything, you, you just don't want to hear from anyone. You just want to hear from yourself. And the enemy is one. He's one. That's called sin. See, we have this again, the idea, the notion of sin is so vague and abstract, but when we, when it boils down to is to say, he wants you to turn away and say, you don't need God at all. You don't want him. Now, what changed that? Someone who understood that feeling and yet resisted. Jesus became flesh. He had to become like us because he had to understand fully what it felt like to have an external prompter saying, you don't need God. Remember the, 
The temptation story of Matthew 4, it is so important because it shows that Jesus bore that same type of temptation from the enemy that we all do. You don't need God. Look, don't go to the cross. The cross is is, is miserable for you. You're starving. Just change the stone to bread. And then everything will be okay. You'll be happy now. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just throw your, just go up and, and throw yourself down and angels can rescue you. Or just get, if, if you just stop this journey towards the cross, I'll give you, you can enjoy the world. It's so pleasurable. And Jesus had to go through that because we go through that every moment of every day. But the one thing Jesus did not do is he did not succumb. And again, do not think that because he didn't sin, that was easier. All we need to do is just look at our own hearts. Is it easier to not sin and turn away from God or to just turn away from God? I tell you, it is so much easier to turn away from God. It's naturally in us to do that. So to not do that and to not do it throughout. When we think about Jesus, he was born poor in a manger, no place to lay his head. He was surrounded by people all the time, thousands, tens of thousands of people, every one of them wanting something from him. Do you ever feel, have a conversation with a friend or even anyone, and you feel as though they're trying to take advantage of you, that they don't actually care for you, but they just want something you have? You feel that with your siblings, parents, children, coworkers? Friends, and when that happens, you feel so used. It's a terrible feeling. Jesus felt that all the time from his disciples, from the crowds that were surrounding him. Everyone wanted healing. As soon as they're healed, they go away and they don't even thank him. And then, of course, the religious leadership are attacking him, trying to trip him up, trying to get rid of him. The hated Romans are trying to do the same thing. They end up destroying, I mean, uh, crucifying him. His closest friend, Judas Iscariot, he's mocked, beaten, bloodied, spat upon, spat, uh, slapped. He would be stripped of his clothing, put on public display with his mother right there watching. He was weeping at his feet. But more than anything else, if you talk about separation... Satan won in the sense that the father was separated from his son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry of dereliction on that cross, it seemed like Satan won. Because that's who Satan is. He wants God separated from us. And the way to do it for Satan was to separate the father from the son. But we know how this turns out. When separation is Satan's plan, God takes that separation and he seals it and he reconciles and he brings together. When in the pit of despair, in the greatest forsakenness, God doesn't allow that separation to take place. His son, who is separated from the father, is able through his work to bring us to the father. That's just something beyond Satan's idea or thought. Satan thought he could do, he he won the day. I've won the day. I've separated families. I've separated people from God. And God says, 
my son who's going to be separated from me is going to bring everyone back to me. What is keeping you separated from the Father? What do you love more than Jesus? Respect? Your job at work? Your spouse? Your child? College to get into? Grad school? Boyfriend or girlfriend? Entertainments? Sports talk? Radio? The 49ers? Definitely not the Warriors <laughs> anymore. Yoga? Gossip? Healthy eating? There's an infinite amount of things that keep us away from God that we're not willing to yield. Again, these are it's not about God doesn't want us to enjoy the things of the world. We talked about that last time. But rather it's God doesn't want any of these to be ultimate because actually when you make it ultimate, you're never satisfied. Do you realize he lives that Satan will do everything to keep you away from him? In Jesus Christ, the death he died for us and the life he lived and the resurrection, all of that was meant to join us with him to make sure that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. I want to read to you from Romans 8, Paul's great ending to the greatest, you could arguably say the greatest chapter of the Bible. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil tried to separate us from the love of God, but it is Christ Jesus, through his work, that makes it possible that we will never be separated from the love of God. And then Paul also ends that great chapter that speaks about death being the great separator from God in chapter 15 of the first letter to the Corinthian church. Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, he's reconciled us. He's brought us home. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the Emmanuel God with us, God. And nothing can separate you from his love. So when we come to this table today, I hope you come keeping that at the forefront. Thank you, Lord. I am naturally running away from you, but Jesus you were forsaken so that I would not leave. And because of that, I will not leave my church. I will not leave my wife or my husband. I will not leave my children. I will not leave my parents. I will not leave my friendships. I will be committed. I will be covenanted to you. This is our God. How good he is. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that Actually, like Satan, far too easily we separate from him. We are seduced by his schemes. But we praise you, O oh Lord, that your only son 
became flesh and dwelt amongst us so that he might understand both the struggles of that separation, but as well to bear the forsakenness of that separation so that we could be brought home. Forgive us, O Lord, for not recognizing how precious the gospel of Christ is and that the blood and the body that was broken on our behalf, it seals us, welcomes us home. We are all prodigals, O Lord. We praise you that some of us have come to our senses. And I pray for those perhaps who have run, who are in the midst of pig slop, settling for so much less. Pray that they too, as John, as Luke describes in Luke 16, verse 19, that we would come to our senses and that we would say it would be better to be a slave in the house of God than to be like this. And then when we come home, you don't take us and bring us into the slave house. You put the signet ring on our finger. You wrap us with robes. You you wrap us in your arms and you say, welcome home, son, daughter. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for you. Welcome home. So Lord, we come to this table with that heart the heart that has been welcomed home. In Jesus' name.